and I'm also going to be recording on on this end, Stanley. Uh, and do I have your permission to record on on my end? <laughs> you, the CIA, the NSA, the KGB, and LSD. I stopped believing I had a legitimate expectation of privacy 50 years ago. I didn't need Snowden to tell me, so it's okay. How many countries um, are you actually barred from? That I know of at this point? Um, three. Israel, Egypt, and I recently learned from a friend, uh, Saudi Arabia. I suspect I'm also barred from UAE and Bahrain. In Europe, I have no idea. I haven't traveled in a while. But Israel, I know for a fact. Egypt, Egypt is a friend of mine said, you're not only barred, but if you go to Egypt, I'm sure they'll let you land. And a few days later, your next of kin will be called. You could be the first person in history to end up suicide by drowning in the Sinai. Do you want him to do like an introduction, Nick, just so you have it on tape? Do you want him to do a like, my name is Stanley Cohen and I'm a lawyer? Okay. Do you want me to sing My Way by Frank Sinatra? <laughs> I mean, yes, please, do it. You know, it, it's funny because I went into the house to, to take a break, and I had no less than, than three either text or phone messages, and we'll just leave it at that, from three different persons who were designated as foreign uh, designated terrorists. Oh, Mr. Popular over here. Yeah, well, you know, it's... Uh, it's um, that's what I do. You're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nicholas Sardine, Punch Punch Vanderkolk. Today's episode, Before the Law, featuring Stanley Cohen. How would you describe your appearance? Uh, what's that rock band that had the, the beards down to their knees? ZZ Top, I think. Yeah, ZZ Top. I probably could pass for ZZ Top right now. My beard is is wild. It's uh, six, seven inches long. <laughs> My hair is completely out of control. I called the local beautician, and she said, you can come and do your hair, but I can't do your beard right now. And I said, I'm not making two trips. Give me a call when you can do my beard. It's wild. Do, do you feel like your, um, your appearance like, has any particular advantages or disadvantages in, in the work that you do? I, I don't really care. Look, people come to me or my adversaries in court or judges before whom I appear they know very well that I am not your typical in terms of looks, let alone an approach to litigation or appearance or demeanor in a courtroom. Your classic, you know, white collar or 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 ACLU type lawyer. I've I've been known for pinstripes and known for nice shoes, and uh, uh, but the, the, I've also tried cases in jeans and work boots and and and. I don't do it for a particular purpose. I don't, I, I mean, you know, the most important thing for a trial attorney is to take over the courtroom, is to make sure that the jury understands you own the courtroom. Um, the judge may, may run it, but you own it. So what are the things you have to do uh, in order to take over the courtroom? Um, some would say pick fights with the judge. Some would, would, would say push the envelope with the judge. Some would be to not be intimidated or well, not some. By... Like, what do, you, what do you think? 
I, I think it's important as a trial attorney to stand your ground, not to be intimidated, not to be coward, and not to simply when a judge says sustained, you shut up and not to retry the same question six times and force the judge to say move on. I think it's important in jury selection to make sure the judge understands that they're the boss, no matter who's sitting in the robes. I think it's important to, to argue over principle, not just to create a show with the government, to make sure that people under, you know, I, I look, I, every criminal case, every, almost everyone is political in nature, one way or another. From the, the person that puts you in the handcuffs to the person that, that stands across from your lawyer and makes a bail application to the judge that decides whether you're going home to your mother, your father, your son or daughter tonight, tomorrow or three years from now, to the appellate court that oversees whether the process worked to protect the status quo anti, it's political. It, 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 look, the reality of it is if you know your stuff, if you're political, if you're a fighter, uh, if you're honest to your clients and yourself and you work goddamn hard, you can, even in the midst of the horror of a system that's built upon uh, uh, prosecuting people on the basis of largely color, uh, class, and politics, you can win. So yeah, I grew up in a kosher household and religion was practiced. Faith was strong. I would go on Saturday mornings as a young man with my father to synagogue. My father had been a um, World War II uh, veteran and hero. He very, very, very rarely talked about war experiences. I came into the living room one day and saw him fixated on a TV show. I was young, and it was a story of a, of a concentration camp. The Nazis kept the occupants of Buchenwald in filth and disease. You know, there were... They, Bodies, emaciated women and children standing behind a fence. And he told me this one story about how he had gone into the basement of a concentration camp to liberate. And he came across a skeletal person sitting on the floor who had no idea who my father was. He didn't, you know, saw a uniform. And he started to cry because he thought he was going to, my father was going to kill him. My father ended up carrying him outside, carrying him to the day of light, left him there, gave him some food and water, and then moved on. The fires of Belsen blot out the place, but not the memory. I think to some degree my father's response to what he observed, what he lived through in terms of World War II and concentration camps, led him as he grew older and as he saw more with Israel on how Israel had become everything that he had, had fought against and resisted and repulsed him about humanity when it came to Palestinians. During the first intifada, there were images that when I would come to visit my parents that my father would, would comment or my mother would comment about, this is not the place and these are not the people and these are not the politics that you know, I, I, I fought for and lived for, and my mother in particular was a young girl. She told me years later she used to raise money for uh, Zionists, uh, the Zionist movement in, in, in street corners in the city and in elsewhere in New Jersey. On occasion, I could recall sitting around in, in the living room of the apartment on King Street with her sort of shaking her head as she saw stories on television of uh, 
mass executions and and and, and Israeli bombs, fire bombs. Uh, recalling how, as a as a twelve or thirteen or fourteen year old kid on a street corner in, in Patterson, New Jersey, fundraising money, she said, "If I had known then that that I was raising money to later on build bombs to drop on other human beings, I would have never done it." I had just finished six months worth of litigation, pro bono, I might add, my then girlfriend at the time kept reminding me, over the 13th Street squatter case in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Very long trial, lots of work and appeal, lots of arrests, lots of litigation, lots of witnesses. I was exhausted, totally fucking beat. And my then girlfriend had surprised me with getting us a, a cabin on the beach in Maine for a week or two weeks. And it was like, oh yeah, okay, we're packing. We're getting ready to go. And, you know, everything was under control. And I had two weeks off. I had someone watching the dog and everything was good. When the phone rang and it was some people who said, uh, Stanley, we got, we got a case that we want you to take a look at. And I said, nah, I'm, I'm tired. I'm burnt. I'm spent. I'm going to Maine with my girlfriend. And they said, no, 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 this is, this is a major player. We want you to take a look. Well, you think you're the person? I said, well, what happened? They said, well, he's a guy that had, was arrested coming back into the United States and is being held at MCC. And I said, eh, I, I got to go. And so, you know, I just said, well, who is this guy? And the person said, Musa Abu Marzouk. And I said, yeah, that's nice. I said, I'm... The name meant nothing to The name at the time meant nothing to me. I said, just, you know, trying to be cordial and play. Who's Musa Abu Marzouk? So the caller said, well, he's the head of Hamas. I went, oh, oh, okay. So what happened here? For years, Musa Abu Marzouk has been one of Hamas's key fundraisers, paymasters, and political strategists. He has the detachment and demeanor of a political spokesman who chose long ago not to notice the blood on his hands. Musa had been in the United States for years. He had been there. He got his master's degree, as I recall. He got his PhD degree there. He was involved in organizing Palestinian communities throughout the United States, in social service activities, in fundraising for activities back in Palestine. The State Department decided they wanted to expel him from the United States. Hamas clergy used Abu Mazuk's arrest to stoke the anti-American fires at Friday prayers. Jerusalem is now seeking Mazuk's extradition to face charges in Israel. The legal process is underway. Um, you know, if for audience members who are not familiar with Hamas, just like a, a, a quick summary of what Hamas is. Hamas is a national liberation movement. It is the elected representative government in, in Gaza. It has a political wing. It has a military wing. It is a national liberation movement. And it is the sole movement or the largest movement that is involved in armed struggle against the uh, Israeli military and security forces. I mean, in the West, people would commonly refer to Hamas as a Palestinian terrorist group. Well, um, I don't really give two shits about what people in the West think. And what was Abu Marzouk's role in Hamas? Abu Marzouk was one of the original founders of Hamas. He was the head of the political bureau, the first head of the political bureau until he was uh, arrested uh, and, and held in the United States for almost two years. 
a uh, very serious political guy who has a very clear and keen understanding of where he's been, not, not he personally, but Palestinians, where he has been, where they have been, where they are, and where they need to go. You're talking about 11, now 12 million people that are stateless, largely, that are homeless, uh, that are under siege. So I got dressed, and I very quickly had my boots on and my jeans, and my hair was a mess, and my beard was a mess. And I went down to MCC and got in to see Abu Marzouk. They built a cage downstairs in 9 South in the main entranceway, 20 feet long, 20 feet wide, with bars, so that they could observe us. I guess they wanted to make sure I wasn't handing them a Snickers bar or, you know, a Molotov cocktail. And he came out to see me, and, you know, he looked at me, stared at me, and he eyed me up and down, went up and down, up and down. He looked at me, he said, who are you? I said, I'm a lawyer. And he looked up and down, up and down. I, I, I used a certain phrase, I don't remember what it was, that I was given to convey to him to let him know I had been sent by the right people. Um, whatever it was, I don't remember. Maybe it was, you know, the Chevy pickup is in the parking lot. I don't know. Um, so I used the phrase, and at that point, he knew that everything was, was, was halal, not haram. It was good. So he looked at me and said, I don't need a lawyer. I said, you're right. You don't need one lawyer. You need a dozen lawyers. So I spent about three hours with him that night, got home, called my girlfriend, who was furious, started screaming, you fucker, what are you doing? You know, you screwed our vacation plan, blah, blah, blah. And I said, Mira, I'm not going. Why don't you go up there and I'll join you in a few days? She said, I've been through this before. Fuck you, hung up. That was the end of it. And, you know, I became Abu Marzouk's lawyer. Um, I understand you have like a lot of photographs in your office and stuff. Go on upstairs. I'm not going up. My leg is killing me unless you, well, unless you need me to talk about I, it. Yeah, I kind of want you to. Yeah, all right, that's fine. <laughs> Take a look. Well, let's see. This is with me with years ago. Oh, look at this mess. Me with Abu Omar. You, you know him as Yasser Arafat years ago. This is me with uh, Sheikh, Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, who was the founder of Hamas. Oh, my God, look at this. This is one of my favorites. This is also in Gaza. Me with Abu Marzouk, who was the head of the political wing of Hamas. Glass broke. I got to get it fixed. There's another photo with uh, me and, and Sheikh Ahmed. Old friends. Also Rafa, 1997, a great sign. Welcome to Hamas camp. Put this back to one of my favorites. I spent a thousand hours with Abu Marzouk and his family and members of the community and went overseas and spent a lot of time with the leadership of Hamas, with the framers and founders of Hamas. These were women and men that had spent years in mixed communities, in communities of Christians and Muslims, of Jews, of academic circles, of scientific circles, of legal circles, who were organizers, who were speakers. This was never about Jews. This was nothing. This was a political struggle for self-determination and liberation. It had to do with Zionism. It had to do with international law. So this was not about, oh my God, you're the first Jew we've met. If I was visiting with my parents in Westchester, you know, Musa would call their phone number to get a hold of me. And I walked in one day and my mother said, she, she, she said to me, it's Musa, I'm talking to Musa. And she said, are they treating you okay? Are you eating okay? Is everything okay? How's your wife? How's your kids? Yes, Mrs. Cohen, how are you? Is your leg better? 
uh, you know, an 85-then-year-old uh, Yiddish mama sitting around kvetching about her health with the leader of Hamas and MCC. Earlier today, suicide bombers blew up two buses in the southern Israeli city of Beersheba. In Israel today, two suicide bombers detonated their explosives. Eight Israelis were killed this morning in a bus explosion outside the north. At least 10 people are reported dead, dozens more wounded. Police and witnesses said the bomber boarded bus number 960 at the main Haifa bus station and set off his charge about 20 minutes later in the rush hour traffic. Hamas and Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade claimed joint responsibility. The uh, group Hamas has taken responsibility, as I understand? That's correct. Um, Hamas has taken responsibility. I have never supported attacks on civilians by anyone by anyone. I think civilians are completely off the table and off the target. But, you know, there's there's not this Vatican litmus test where, oh my God, at one point, at one time, in one place, someone who claimed to have been a member of your movement or actually was dispatched by someone from your movement targeted a civilian, so I'm writing you off. If that were the case, I would have to live in a fucking cave on Mars. There are times with national liberation movements where things get ugly. Um, but we're not talking about movements with air forces. We're not talking about movements with navies. We're not talking about movements with you know, tanks. We're not talking about movements that have highly sophisticated networks of weaponry that European and European colonial projects do. So actually, can we just back up a second, Stanley? Because I, I really what I want to understand is when is violence a legitimate tactic and when is it not? Like, is it just about um, who's wielding it and how much power they already have? I, 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 listen, that's settled by, by international law and the law of war. Armed struggle, which includes violence, is legal under international law for people that are occupied. Armed violence is permitted for people that are engaged in self-defense of communities of homes, um, armed violence is a permissible response under the law of war to invading forces, to invading even people that are reservists. It's legitimate under war right there. The law of war um, and, and the Geneva Conventions very clearly defines when the use of violence, including violent, uh, armed violence, is permissible. I mean, I mean the, 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 the armed struggle, the use of, of weapons, the use of violence under international law is 100 percent lawful. It's lawful. But but even even putting like putting that aside, I mean, in terms of like, I mean, were there any um, activities that Hamas um, engaged in that sort of gave you pause? No. No. Not like suicide bombings or no. any of that stuff? No. No. Listen, I'm a lawyer, okay? I'm involved with clients for many years, even in those days, with people involved in armed struggle. I'm involved with people who have at times used violence, at times used their, 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 their tongues, at times used, used um, um, tactics that would be described as pacifist, at times engaged in armed struggle. I don't dictate the manner and means of armed struggle or resistance. That's not for me to do. Um, you know, if, if I'm going to pass judgment on anyone for tactics, for strategies, for the, the activity they've engaged in, I don't have to travel outside of Washington, D.C., 
I mean, you know, when you begin to say, are there anything that troubled you? The slaughter of millions of North American Indians troubled me. The slave industry troubled me. Um, the surf industry of Asians troubled me. Jim Crow troubled me. The U.S. Senate, including Bernie Sanders, voting for sanctions in Iraq in 1998 or whenever it was, which killed half a million children, troubled me. The dropping of atom bombs troubled me. The invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan troubled me. So I don't have to take a look at self-determination and national resistance movements in the Middle East to find, you know, to, 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 to be in the eye of the storm over issues of weapons and movement and violence and, 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 and that type of activity. Now, where do I stand? What do I do? I was inculcated. I grew up in the most violent terrorist regime of the last several centuries called the United States. Let, 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 me, let, let me say this. Let, let, me, let me just, as, 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 as a close-up, I have zero doubt in my mind if I were Palestinian, what I would do. <laughs> zero doubt in my mind. What would you do? I would clearly be involved in armed struggle. Clearly. No ifs, ands, or buts. And I probably would have been imprisoned by Israel and murdered or died in jail 20 years ago. So, so along these lines, we were hoping to play a terrorist or freedom fighter lightning round. Yeah, go ahead. So I'm gonna, I'm just gonna throw out some names. You mm -hmm. tell me if they're a terrorist or a freedom fighter. So Hamas. Oh, freedom fighters. Okay, Hezbollah. Freedom fighter. Al Qaeda. Um, largely terrorist. ISIS. Oh, clearly terrorist. Khmer Rouge. <laughs> Sick puppies. So ter terrorists? Oh, absolutely. Uh, how about uh, Basque separatists? Uh, freedom fighters. Tamil tigers? Both. Both. Let me ask you, what was the IRA? Oh, that was that was going to be next on my list, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> freedom fighters. Freedom fighters. How about the Bundys? You know, the, those guys who took over the, uh, the National Wildlife Refuge. Lunatics. <laughs> Sick puppies. How about the Rebel Alliance from Star Wars? Um, Nanu Nanu Shazbot. When you win the case of the leader of Hamas and beat Israel seeking his extradition, you tend to be someone who's wanted by lots of folks and lots of movements and lots of clients in the Middle East. Osama bin Laden's son-in-law will appear in a Manhattan courtroom today after being caught in Turkey and... Suleiman Abu Ghaith was a chief propagandist for Al-Qaeda. In the world of Al-Qaeda, he was the guy who married the boss's daughter. If ever there was a guy swept up the deer in the headlights, it's Suleiman Abu Ghaith. The FBI compared him to something like a propaganda minister in a developing country or a consigliere in a mob family. The son-in-law will appear before a New York federal magistrate in a courtroom here to answer charges of conspiracy to kill U.S. citizens as a top member of his father-in-law's inner circle. He was in one video that came out just a day after the 9-11 attacks in which bin Laden took credit for the attacks and Abu Ghaith praised them on camera. <laughs> America must know that what happened to it is a direct result of this policy, and if America will continue implementing this policy, Muslim sons will not stop under any circumstances. Suleiman Abu Ghaith is a good guy. The closest this guy's ever come to a, a, a bomb, a gun, a plan, 
A fatwa is television. So what exactly was he accused of doing? Material support for terrorism by virtue of being a religious figure for a while uh, in various camps in Afghanistan and also making public statements and speeches on air and in various institutions, which the government saw as a means of organizing and enticing additional members to come to join al-Qaeda. He made speeches. He said some stupid things, you know, because you were charismatic, because there were lots of young people, because they believed in you, because they followed you. Even though, no, we had no reason to believe you were involved in 9-11, your charisma, your speech, your voice helped organize other people who were. That's why you're guilty. That was their theory. And um, what was his response to those allegations? Well, his response was simple, not guilty. His response was, uh, <clears throat> I, I had an absolute right to make statements and speeches about the United States. And, you know, I'm, am I to self-muzzle on the off chance that I'm a powerful speaker and a charismatic speaker and people might identify with me and because of that might decide they want to engage in an organization, whether it's al-Qaeda or another one? Um, uh, you know, Tom Paine was incredibly charismatic. He was a pamphleteer. He made speeches on the corner. Stanley Cohn has been called at various times and places a charismatic speaker. Might he be charged with violating the law because as a result of my feelings or sentiments about various nations or states throughout the world, someone chooses to go and do something? Um, so that case was tried in New York City, right? Yeah, the Southern District. Yeah, so were you facing a losing battle going in trying to defend a guy who was alleged to have been part of 9-11 no, no, in wasn't, New York. No, he wasn't alleged to, he had nothing to do with 9-11. Um, uh, but trying the case of bin Laden's son-in-law, who was seen the day after 9-11 in a video saying, you know, we're going to come and get you again, you know, a mile from where the, 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 the World Trade Centers were. Sure, it's terrible. And also at the same time when the Jewish Defense Organization was plastering all over the neighborhood, you know, tax on me for being a self-hating Jew and for all the blah, 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 blah. During jury selection, they leafleted the night before jury selection. I don't remember. A whole bunch of leaflets about Cohen needs to be taught. Cohen needs to be schooled. He is an enemy of the Jewish people. He's the enemy of American people. He's al-Qaeda and justice is his that had to be had or some crap. I had no idea. Shut up the court. Judge called us in the chambers and said, have you seen this, Mr. Cohen? I said, No. He said, do you feel intimidated, scared? Do you need a continuance? No. It's the usual wing nuts. So the Justice Department, we took a break for four hours, and the judge ordered the Justice Department to go around the neighborhood to make sure all these leaflets were taken down so as not to prejudice the potential jury panel. And a lot of jurors said during that case, I can't be fair. I can't be fair. But when you're dealing with a case like that, it's, it's a, an enormous push uphill. Lawyers for Suleiman Abu Ghaith argued that the evidence in this case amounted to little more than words and associations. That was enough to convict him on all of the government's charges. The trial wrapped up in under three weeks with little fanfare and little disruption to this neighborhood, just blocks away from where the World Trade Centers once stood. You, you were called at one point um, the most hated lawyer in New York. I mean, that's... In, in America. In America. Yeah. Is that hyperbole or... I don't know. I mean, I... I um, especially post 9-11. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
eventually the ACLU, the Center for Constitutional Rights, the National Lawyers Guild, other groups began to get involved in Muslim communities and surveillance and observation in immigration cases and so-called terrorism cases in Guantanamo. But in the first two, three years post 9-11, when no one was doing this stuff, not only was I doing this stuff, but I was doing a million Fox TV and CNN TV and television because I felt obligated to do it because it was so one-sided, because there were tens of thousands of young Muslim women and men in this country that felt alienated and isolated and frightened and intimidated and disempowered. And I felt obligated to say, no, it's going to be okay. So there was a period where at airports, people would come up and spit at me. Um, people would threaten me. I'd be in the bathroom and someone would throw a roll of toilet paper at me. Um, I've had it on airplanes where people come up and are noxious as hell. You're an asshole, Cohen. Good, I'm an asshole. All right, thank you. You know, you want to see mine? Can I see yours? And they expect me to, like, fuck them up and fight back. And it's like, you done? Hey, Freddie, can I, like, put my headphones on and have some food? I'm not going to go to war over that stuff. I got a call in the middle of the night, literally the day after 9-11, Two days after 9-11, I was awakened in the middle of the night by a reporter from the Daily News. Mr. Cohen, this is so-and-so. Great, how are you? Why are you waking me up? Well, you represent terrorists. I couldn't resist. I represent freedom fighters. No, I don't represent Wall Street fucking with this guy. No, let's be serious here. What do you think about 9-11? It's horrible. I watched people covered in ash walk up and down my neighborhood. I saw the buildings collapse. It was terrible. It's horrible. Well, these are your people. My people? It's news to me. What do you think about it? I said, it was horrible. So he said, well, it's bin Laden. I said, I, I wouldn't know. I haven't seen Osama since the weekend of playing golf. Young reporter, and you know, I was fucking with him. And he was fucking with me. And he said, well, would you represent bin Laden? I said, I don't know. I said, I would deal with bin Laden the way I would any other, quote, political client. I'd sit down, I'd talk to him, I'd decide, is this someone I could spend umpteen thousands of hours with? Is this something who I politically could deal with, who I personally could deal with? I said, but besides, I really don't think bin Laden is a due process sort of guy. I doubt he's going to walk into a courtroom of his own volition or not in the United States. Thank you, goodbye. The next day, the Daily News, second page, Cohen says he would represent bin Laden as a great hero with my picture there. It's like, no, this never happened, this discussion, but go ahead, have some fun. So I got, oh my God, emails and phone calls and screaming matches. You motherfucker, you killed our people. I got people from Texas, from Kansas, from Ohio, who have hated New York their entire fucking life, hated New Yorkers, hated New York City, hate Jews, hate the East Coast. I would never go there. It's full of arrogant motherfucking pieces. The base, Trump's base these days, calling, haunting. Oh, my God, these wonderful... I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? You hate us, New Yorkers, forever. Um, I need to take a quick bathroom break. You want to take a food break or... Uh, yeah, you want a break? Take a little. I got two good quiches. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to try this quiche. Here, this was sent from Hamas. Oh, there we go. It's vegetarian. I hope you don't mind. No, it's fine.
I'd love to. I'd love to t touch on um, your conviction for tax evasion. It's not tax evasion. It's impeding the IRS. It was the only prosecution for impeding the IRS in 30 years by the Department of Justice. It started out with a fight that I had with the government over OFAC, the Office of Financial Asset Control. It started out with Abu Marzouk because we had a bunch of contributors that wanted to donate money to both the defense team, the defense fund, and expenses who wanted to do it but were afraid that they would be designated as terrorists, as supporters of terrorists. I decided there came a point in time that almost all the cases, political cases I was doing in the Middle East, I was going to do pro bono from that point on that we'd get third parties that weren't foreign-designated terrorist organizations, or I would have, they would pay for travel, pay for expenses, um, but I would not do anything, get paid a penny by foreign-designated terrorist organizations or individuals. OFAC reached out to me one day, said, you got to get a license for these people. No, I don't. You're telling me because I represent someone that's an FTO or an individual, I have to get a license? Yes. No, no, the statute is if I'm getting money. You're doing these cases for free? Yes. Um, well, we think under the interpretation, whether it's publicity, whether it's public relations, whether it's you like them, you're dating their daughter, you're dating their brother, you're getting something in exchange, you have to get a license. Fuck you. Fuck me? We're going to indict you. Go ahead, indict me. You want to go to court and put me on trial because I'm representing FTOs for free? Go ahead. This investigation went on for 10 years, and it went nowhere. They eventually walked away. So the IRS gets involved, and they take the position, we know you cheated us. We can't figure out how. We can't figure out why. We can't figure out how much, but we know. So it really gets heated. It, it, it begins two years, three years. There's subpoenas. There's motions to quash. They start interfering with my clients. They start threatening to bring my family from Akwesasne into this. I just decided to end this. Done, finished, enough. I made a decision that I was not going to spend the next 20 years of my life without a law license, in appellate courts, in trial courts, in and out, as I knew other lawyers. I wasn't going to do it and ended up taking a plea to impeding the IRS. And, and, and why do you believe that, the, that this was all politically motivated? Well, other than the fact that I was what started out as an investigation for material support of terrorism because of my telling the U.S. government, the FBI, the federal prosecutors all over the country, to some degree the CIA, uh, the DEA, and everyone else go fuck yourself, I can't imagine why. 2014, the last time I was in Gaza, it was, I don't know, six months, nine months before I went to prison, people in Gaza asked me to stay. They said, we'll give you political asylum. You're one of us. You're here. You're home. This bullshit about impeding the eye. And I said no. Not because it wasn't attractive. Not because I don't have a sense of identity, community feel, and love with Palestinians and their resistance. But because of, listen, ducking Israeli bombs is not where I make a difference. Where I make a difference is throwing my bombs in the West. And my bombs sometimes are in the courtroom, sometimes are in a conference, sometimes while speaking. I have no doubt that the U.S. government would have preferred that I'd stayed in Gaza. I have no doubt that Israel, they would have assassinated me five times over. Oh, yeah, Cohen had a tank in his house. There, the house is gone. You know, the funny part of it is I met with the regional director of the IRS and the Treasury Department in a, towards the end of this. They spent years looking for my money offshore, looking for the hidden assets, 
looking for the land, looking for the bank account, looking for the Panama Papers. And she eventually said to me, she said, there is none, is there? I said, no. She said, I mean, you've really like done this stuff for free in the Middle East. I said, mostly. She said, why? I said, then you really don't know who I am. And that was the end of it. But most people think there is no cause for crime, except the pure cussedness of the ones they call a criminal. As a young activist, as a young kid growing up, one of my heroes, and he'd been dead already 50, 60 years, was Clarence Darrow. But as a matter of fact, there's a cause for everything in this world. And there's no way to remove the evil without removing the cause. He had sort of cut his teeth as a defender of labor unions back in the really brutal days of labor organizing in the 1890s, 1880s, um, where he defended some of the most notorious uh, labor organizers. They were viewed by um, the business elite as, as virtual terrorists. One of them had blown up the governor of Idaho, and Clarence Darrow went in and, and defended him and got him off. The real cause of crime is poverty, ignorance, hard luck. He was a master of making compelling arguments of why this person, whether or not they'd blown up the governor of Idaho, deserved to be set free. All of these things almost universally combine to put people in jail. He was an atheist and agnostic and a, a mean-ass son of a bitch. And when he was dying, someone interviewed him for his final biography, and he was asked by the biographer, if you had to do it all over again, what would you do differently? Fair question. And Darrow's answer was, I wouldn't. Not I wouldn't do it differently, I wouldn't do it again. At all. And Darrow died two days later. It's been a long journey. And now the end is near. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. There are lots of big cases, little cases, big cases. I did what I had to do. I saw it through without exemption. If I had it to do all over again? There you go, Frank Sinatra. I would. Sorry, Clarence. Blandly standing still Cause of our triumph of the will We'll soon be back to blandly going places I believe they say it best You say it's our brains to the rescue And the human race is back to the races We're the species of the year We made it all the way back here We won the game, it's all champagne and high fives Now we beat that stupid virus We can get back to our stupid lives that's it for Love and Radio. This episode was produced by Noam Osbond, Robin Amer, Phil Demahovsky, and Stephen Jackson, who also did the sound design. It featured music by Josiah Steinbrick, Oliver Coates, Lucretia Dalt, and Emily Sprague. The final song you're listening to now is from Jeffrey Lewis. For links to all the music we feature on the show, please visit our website, loveandradio.org, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. 
If you want to support the production of future episodes of Love and Radio, please consider donating at loveandradio.org slash donate. I'm Nicholas Vanderkolk, and if you haven't already, be sure to check out the Secrets Hotline podcast, which is now publishing brand new episodes weekly, available wherever you listen to audio radio podcasty things. Goodbye. For now. Somewhere else a cosmic wave arrives. But here we beat that stupid virus and we'll get back to our stupid lives. It's a victory celebration in each city and each nation. We've transcended nature's dialectic. We came through because we're the smartest. Human beings rock the hardest. We're both modest and entirely epic. In the chambers of the nameless lay the claims of Nostradamus that proclaimed thus in the dark archives. Ye shall beat that stupid virus, thou shalt get back to thy stupid lives. So wraps up the fiery rapture, and so ends the mighty chapter, as this volume of the book seals shut. And it rejoins the commentary in the infinite library of the turning wheels of when and what into the poet's pages played out on the cosmic stages logged in lines of time's divine hard drives now we beat that stupid virus we can get back to our pointless grubbing petty dead and stupid lives darrow i think did 150 or 140 cases on death row uh including leopold and Loeb, and never lost one Never, but got indicted one day for bribing a jury in one of the death penalty cases he did, a juror, bribing a juror. Yeah, and he got acquitted, beat the case at trial, and he did it. He did? He did it. And I'm also going to be recording on... on